Our scripture reading is from Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. This is found on page 828 in your pew Bible. If you do not own a Bible, we'd love for you to take the Bible that's right in front of you as a gift from us. I'd love everyone to have a copy of God's Word. So again, that's Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Anthony, very much for uh, reading God's Word for us, and uh, I will add um, my welcome to his this morning. My name is Paul Brandis, and I serve as one of the associate pastors here at Christ Community Brookside, um, and I personally am grateful for the pastoral residency program. Uh, I went through it myself and completed it in May, um, and I will, all joking aside, uh, absolutely say that Anthony and Melissa have done an incredible job over the last 18 months. They'll be with us for about another six months or so, so your time is relatively limited to, to actually do what he said, and we'd encourage you in that way to, to encourage him and her and to thank them and to invite them into your home and get to know them, because they, they really are truly wonderful. Well, this morning, uh, January 22nd, is Sanctity of Life Sunday, you may or may not know, and uh, at Christ Community, uh, life in all of its forms is deeply important to us 52 weeks out of the year, um, but we do want to pause on, on this Sunday and offer up a special prayer before we open God's Word uh, together uh, for the Sanctity of Life. And so, if you would, bow your heads with me uh, as I pray. O God of life, give us the courage and compassion we need to live as faithful advocates for human life in all of its expressions. How we long for the day when life will flourish fully in the new heaven and the new earth. Today we especially think about the lives of unborn children and the constant threat to those lives, even as we cry out to you on behalf of all kinds of women in all kinds of situations who are carrying those children in their wombs. There is a day coming when abortion will be no more. In light of that day, give us wisdom, give us strength, give us perseverance, give us the sufficient grace we need to advocate for unborn children in this day, in our communities and among the nations of the world. We also cry out for gospel compassion. Jesus, show us how to love and care for women and men whose stories are marked by abortion, either as victims or agents. Only the gospel is sufficient for the guilt. Only the gospel can bring healing. Only the gospel can transform an agent of wrong into a warrior for justice and mercy. Jesus, we don't just long for the day of no more abortions. We also long for the day of no more miscarriages. Sin and death have violated every domain of shalom, including the realm of birthing. Our hearts break for those families who would love a child to your glory but must endure the pain of giving up their children before birth. 
Show us how to love and serve them well. Finally, may our zeal against abortion be matched by a zeal for walking with women in crisis pregnancies and a zeal for adopting the millions of orphans in the world. Surely there is room in our hearts and homes for these precious image bearers of yours. Surely your gospel is big enough for this calling too. In the name of Jesus, the very author of life, we pray all of these things. Amen. Well, Ashley and I were blessed with our first child, Bevan, uh, just under two years ago, and we're actually expecting again due February 2nd. So if I get a phone call and walk off stage in the middle of this, it's excused uh, because it is right around the corner for us. And one of my big takeaways from the first couple years of parenting, we've got a long way to go, we've got a lot to learn, but one of my big takeaways is there are a lot of rules in life. I mean, I don't wake up every morning thinking about that as an adult, but as I reflected upon that this week, I mean, here's, here's just a list of the things that I've said, uh, and many, many more, right? But I've said these things to, to Bevan in the last couple of years. Uh, don't cross the street when cars are coming. Uh, don't hit the dog. Uh, and don't put trash in your mouth. <laughs> and to all of those things, Bevan has said to me, Why? <laughs> And as many rules and commands as there are for toddlers, we don't really ever take them away as we get older, do we? It's still a good thing for you not to put trash in your mouth, even though you're no longer a toddler. We add more rules in, we add more commands, and as you know, they only grow in complexity. As you're moving into your student years, your adult years, here are just a few of the things that will be said to you or expected of you. Choose the right college and career. Any students feeling that one? The pressure, right? Got to get the right grades. Start investing in the right retirement plan in your 20s. Don't buy a house with a bad foundation. And this last one, don't trust Andy Reid to manage his timeouts correctly. <laughs> oh, that's a little, I know that. Some of you didn't laugh. I, I get it. It's only seven days old. It's, it's too soon, I know. But you get the point, I think. At times, all that we're supposed to do and not do in life can feel really, really overwhelming. And if you're anything like me, what you probably want is for someone to just cut it down to size. What's most important? What can I absolutely not miss? And in today's passage, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40, that is exactly what Jesus does for us. He cuts away everything else and he tells us what to him is most important. And I'll let you know right at the top, for Jesus, what's most important isn't complicated, but it is costly. For Jesus, what's important isn't complicated, but it is costly. A question is posed to Jesus, another one, the third trap. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? In other words, what's most important, Jesus? What matters most? And Jesus' reply, it really boils down to one word. Love. Love is what is most important. And that's simple, isn't it? Uncomplicated, but costly. Especially the type of love that Jesus is referring to. Because love, as what matters most, I get it, it, it sounds sappy, it sounds romantic, and maybe you're thinking that Jesus was the fifth beetle, because all you need is love, right? But that's not what Jesus is getting at. No, the type of love that Jesus is referring to in this passage is a little bit different. It's a costly love. 
Because Jesus says that when it comes to love, what we've got to do is first love God supremely, love God supremely, and then love others sacrificially. Love God supremely and others sacrificially. The first idea to love God supremely comes from the passage in verse 37. You can look back at it with me where uh, Jesus is responding to the lawyer's question and he says that the great and first command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now Jesus didn't pull this answer out of thin air. In fact, the question that the lawyer poses to him, it has a fixed data set. He's asking, what is the greatest command in the law? Referring, he probably most likely meant to the first five books of our Bible that you're all holding today. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in those five books, there is a total of not one, not two, not three, not even ten, but a total of 613 commandments. 613 And in addition to the 600-plus explicit do's and don'ts, over the years since the law had been handed down, there was a massive oral and written tradition that had come up around these commands to try to help explain them and parse them out. So what the lawyer is asking Jesus is, out of all of that, Jesus, 600-plus commands and all of this tradition, what's most important? And Jesus' answer comes from the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes the Bible. He quotes the Old Testament. Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Those verses in the first part of our Bibles in the book of Deuteronomy read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These verses are known as the Shema because the Hebrew word for hear, the first word in the passage is Shema. And the Shema was incredibly important to the religious life of Jews. It was customary for them to sing it as a refrain twice a day. For Jewish people in the first century, it was normal. It was rhythm. It was routine. It was, it was a Wednesday. It was everyday life. And this stands out to me then as it relates to Jesus choosing it as an answer for his question, for the lawyer's question. Because when I reflected upon how Jesus has most often responded to other questions that have been asked of him in the Gospel of Matthew, what I, what I remembered was that it seems as though every time Jesus is teaching, the crowds are standing there with their mouths wide open. They're saying, they're thinking, oh, I never even considered it that way. It's groundbreaking thought and logic. So if Jesus had done the same thing to this question, you would have expected him to pull a command out of the book of Hezekiah. Not a real book of the Bible, by the way. Or maybe pull back from some little known bit of tradition that kind of got forgotten and lost along the way. But he doesn't. Jesus returns to Deuteronomy's greatest hits. Everyone knew the Shema. Everyone. And so in one sense, this answer from Jesus isn't groundbreaking at all. And that's exactly the point. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I know that there's a lot. I know that scripture can be confusing. I know 600 is a big number, but I'm not going to break any new ground here because I can't. What's most important now is what's always been most important. And that's loving God supremely. Love God supremely. And we really 
for just a moment should stop and consider the audacity of that claim. Love God supremely? Jesus and the Shema, they don't leave any wiggle room. It's really clear. The God of the universe, the God who authored the Bible, who stands behind the human authors of it, he demands our love. Demands it. And that's audacious. That's offensive. For many people throughout history, the fact that God demands our love has been a barrier to faith. Consider Oprah as just one example. She's shared many times that she walked away from her Christian faith in her mid-20s because the Bible teaches that God is a jealous God, that He demands our love and that no one else should receive our, our highest allegiance or affection. And Oprah, along with many others, have concluded that this God could not possibly be a loving God, and so she and others have walked away. And to be honest, I'm sympathetic to her concerns. At first blush, the command, the demand to love God supremely seems egotistical and selfish. So it's really important for us to look at why God commands us so. Is it arbitrary? Is it just out of thin air? Is it because he said so? Well, consider with me, if you will, the first part of the Shema. Hear, O Israel. That's basically, this is important, listen up. It continues, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. These two little sentences are the big why behind God's command to love him supremely. And I, and I might summarize them this way. The Lord our God, the one we worship, the one we've dedicated our lives to, our God, he's the only one. He's the only real deity that exists. Anyone or anything else that claims that position is either faking it or isn't even real. Now, consider the logical conclusions of that thought train with me for a second. If God is the only true God, and I know that is a big, massive, giant if, but if He is, if He is, then He is the greatest power, the greatest truth, and the greatest good. And I know that that sounds like classic, over-the-top preacher hyperbole, but it's not. If the Shema is true, if God is who he says he is, as the only real deity in the universe, then he is the greatest power, the greatest truth, and the greatest good. Which is exactly why he demands our love. He does so because he knows that he is the greatest good. To command us to love anything or anyone less than himself would actually be evil. Imagine with me that you run a family-owned grocery store in a town filled with chains. You find out that these other grocers all have received tainted produce from the same distributor, but they're still selling it without notifying the general public. In your efforts to promote your store over and above the others, it will first appear as if you're being self-serving, but you are actually displaying a great act of love. To remain silent would be evil. It would be damaging. It would be destructive. And in a very similar way, it's why God demands that we love Him supremely. It may seem selfish at first glance, but if He is the greatest good, then it is actually selfless. 
God knows that it's in our best interest to love him supremely. Don't miss that. God demands our love not for his interest, but for ours. God doesn't need our love, but boy, do we need him. Now, maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you're not sure the Shema is true, and maybe you're not ready to agree with me that that big if about God being the greatest good in the universe is true. And I don't blame you if you're in that spot. I sympathize. I I get, and I think Jesus did too, how massive these claims are, how big they are. They're over the moon. I think Jesus' original listeners understood that as well. And we actually have to get back to Matthew 22 because maybe you notice that I cut Jesus short. There's this awkward moment in the story where the lawyer, he's asked Jesus for one commandment, but Jesus can't help himself. He gives two. Love God supremely, Jesus says, but wait, but wait, don't stop listening. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, love others sacrificially. And Jesus didn't invent this command out of thin air either. It's found in Leviticus 19.18 at the end of a section of specific commands on how the Jews were to act in a relationship with one another. This command to love others as yourself, to love your neighbors as yourself, it's the general punchline at the end of a long list of specific commands because love your neighbor as yourself is a principle, it's a command that can be applied to all different stages of life, all different situations. And I, again, find it very interesting that Jesus chose this and gave it as his command number 1A, we'll call it, as an answer here. Because if command number one, to love God supremely, has acted as a barrier to faith for people, then it's likely that for those same people, command number 1A, to love others sacrificially, has been the only part of the Christian faith that they can get on board with. I think it has gone something like this. Love God supremely? I don't think so. But love others? Okay, yeah. I'm on board with that. That sounds right. You know, I did a bit of thinking this week about what our great commandment would be today in 21st century Western culture. And, and I might be wrong about this, but I, I kind of think it would be some watered-down version of love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, maybe we'd state it as tolerate everyone, do no harm, be kind to all people. Of course, these aren't exactly the same, but they're in the same ballpark, aren't they? I mean, don't you think that almost anyone you know and everyone you know, whether Christian or non-Christian, would agree that love your neighbor is a good idea, a good command, a good sentiment, a fine thing to live your life by? So it is so important for us then to truly get at the heart of what Jesus is saying with love your neighbor as yourself. What is he doing here in this moment? And and more importantly, what is Jesus doing by so closely linking command number one and command number 1A? By seamlessly weaving together the commands to love God supremely and love others sacrificially, Jesus is making yet another audacious claim. Because I think what Jesus is saying here is that the best way to love others is to love God most. 
By connecting these two ideas and putting them right on top of each other, Jesus is saying the best way to love others is to love God most. And that's immediately offensive, isn't it? Why? It's offensive because while we might agree that it's a good idea to love our neighbors as ourselves, we want to define how we get to do that. We want, our own, we want to set our own rules for loving others, our own agenda. I get to decide how to love my neighbor as myself, we think. But again, let's revisit the Shema for a moment. The big if, if God is the only God, that's the big if, I know, but if he is, and he is the greatest good in the universe, then it would follow that he could, and I would say he, he even should, be the one who defines the parameters of how we should truly love our neighbors. And if we dig deeply on this, I think we instinctively know it to be true. I think we know that, that true love moves beyond just what our culture think lo- what our culture often thinks love is, which is simply faithfully doing good deeds for others. But as one scholar put it, disciplined altruism is not love. Disciplined altruism is not love. It has to move deeper. True love moves beyond simply doing good deeds for others. It moves into the difficult places when it's needed. True love sets boundaries. True love confronts. It takes the long view. It says hard things. It speaks the truth. Doesn't it? Consider the best parents that you know. Ashley and I are not the best parents we know, but we're trying to do right by Bevan. We would absolutely say that we want to love him sacrificially. So how are we going about that? What are we doing? Do we let him do whatever he wants? Play in the street no matter what? Eat only handfuls of shredded cheese at dinner? Hit the dog? Maybe it's obvious, but Bevan wants to do all of these things. Like, these are specific examples (laughs) from last week. (laughs) And he wants to do these things because for Bevan at 21 21 months old, that's the good life for him. He thinks that's what's best for him. But you and I, we know better. We know that the cars are going to kill him, the cheese is going to give him diabetes, and the dog is going to bite him. So what do Ashley and I do? We have the hard conversation. We reshape. We reframe. We confront. True love gives lots and lots of timeouts. Like lots of them. In other words, true love for others does exactly what God does for us. If you spend enough time with God, He's going to confront you. He's going to reshape the way you see the world and He's going to redefine what the good life is for you. And yeah, that's going to be really hard and really painful and it might not be a whole lot of fun along the way. But to not do that, if God just sort of stepped back and didn't, it would be an incredibly unloving act. Just like it would be an unloving act for me to not watch my son carefully when he plays by a busy street. So again, the best way to love others is to love God most. As I hope we've seen, these commands from Jesus are command number one and command number 1A. It's not command number one and command number two. They're inextric- inextricably linked and they must stand together. 
And both of them, I think we've seen this as well, I know I've felt it, both of these, separately or together, these are costly actions. These are costly commands. Loving God supremely, that's a simple idea, but you, you know, I know, that's going to cost us a lot. Loving others sacrificially, moving to that deep place where true love moves beyond just simply doing good deeds for other people, that is a simple idea, but it's really hard to live out because it's difficult and it's costly. For Jesus, what's most important? Love. True love is not complicated, but it is going to cost us something. But I'm convinced, I don't know if you are, but I'm convinced that it is the way to the good life. And so I want to know how. And that's the question that's been rattling around for me all week as I've been preparing. How do we love better? It's going to cost me a lot, but I want it. I think I want it. I think I'm convinced I'm in. Okay, how do we love better? Well, first, we have to start with God. Start with God. And again, this is right out of our passage this morning. It's not a mistake the way Jesus orders the commands. They're linked, but they're ordered. He pulls from Deuteronomy 6 before he pulls from Leviticus 19. We have to start with God and love Him supremely first. Consider again the best parents you know. Pretend now that they've hit a bit of a rough patch in their marriage. They're not so much husband and wife right now as they are teammates suffering a winless season. The Cleveland Browns of this year. Sorry to anyone from Cleveland. (laughs) This couple decides to go to marriage counseling. They're getting into the thick of it with the counselor and one place they experience full agreement is that they both feel horrible that their marital struggles are negatively impacting their kids. They're kicking around the idea of putting their struggles to the side so they can try to focus on loving their kids again. The counselor listens patiently and then he leans in and he says this, one of the worst things you could do for your kids is to put them first. If you want to love them well, you have to start again with each other. For us, when we're considering the question of how we can love better, we have to first consider where our love priorities lie. Where is our first love? just like the couple in marriage counseling. Because that's just it, isn't it? As humans, you and I, we're built to be lovers. God, who created us in his image, the book of 1 John says, God is love. And he made us in his image. This is what we're designed for. But as I'm sure you've noticed, what or who you love shapes you. It forms you. It makes you. That's why I think the ancient Christian scholar Augustine got it just right when he wrote this. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me there. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me there. Augustine pictured our lives as if we were on a ship. And the current, the waves, the wind, that's what we love. And what we love is sending us toward a particular future, toward a specific destination. What you love most is most important about you. What you love most is the most important thing about you because what you love most is carrying you somewhere. So if you don't start with God, if your love for Him, if your supreme love isn't directed in at him, then, then what's happening? Where are you headed in the ship of life? 
And this isn't easy, it's incredibly difficult, but I do believe that the Bible teaches clearly that if your ultimate love does not lie with God, then the boat that you're on is headed for eventual destruction. And the reason for this, and it may sound over the top, but the reason for this is because over the course of time, nothing else but God can hold water. Even the best who's or what's that we love in place of God will eventually fail us, will eventually start to lake, eventually will sink. Our spouse, our kids, our career, our talents, our accomplishments, our good grades, whatever it is, it cannot be your foundation. It cannot be your first. We're built to start with God, and if we don't start with God, if He is not our first supreme love, then the consequences are disastrous. So what do you do? If, if in your heart of hearts you know that your ultimate, lie, your ultimate love lies elsewhere, what do you do? What's the next step? Well, thankfully, mercifully, in the book of Matthew, before we get to chapter 22, we get to Matthew 11. Before Jesus commands, before he gives the great commandment in Matthew 22, Jesus first in Matthew 11 offers us the great invitation. Matthew 11 verses 28 through 30 are so important to us as a church. It's deeply shaped how we think about what it means to to follow after Jesus. And, And they read this way. Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Does that describe anyone else here this morning? No, it describes me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, that I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites you into his yoke. No, not an egg yoke, that would be messy, but an animal yoke. The yoke, it might be an an outdated piece of farming equipment, but I think that it still stands as an incredible image of how we can love better. Because you see what farmers used to do with this is they would put two animals into the yoke, one old and wise who knew the path of the field, and one young and not wise who needed to learn the path of the field. And as the young, not wise animal would want to stray and walk away, the older, wise animal would keep them on the straight and narrow would keep them living life in the right way. And this is the image. This is what Jesus invites you into. And listen, you're going to be yoked to something. You are. And before you accept Jesus' invitation into his yoke, you're yoked to sin. And that's a yoke that's not leading you anywhere good. And so Jesus says, come into my yoke. Learn the ways of life from me. And it is in the yoke that you find the greatest master and teacher you could ever possibly imagine. It is in the yoke that you learn from this master and teacher about how to live life skillfully, with wisdom. It is in the yoke that you learn how to become like him. And if you're like Jesus, then you are like the greatest person who has ever loved on the face of the earth. No one loved God more supremely, and no one has loved others more sacrificially than Jesus. So if you're yoked to him, that's a great start. But I don't think we can stop here because we're still a tad incomplete. 
I think briefly we have to close with some examination and reflection. Because as I thought about this this week, I realized, you know what? I kind of know already how to love God, like the specific like bullet points, and and I know more or less what I should be doing to love people. I think the question that I was rattling around with this week is not so much like how, how do I specifically live into loving God and people better, but more how am I already doing? What's the update here? Where are the signs of whether or not I'm growing in my love for God and my love for people? And so I want to close with a final question. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Because I think fruit is probably even a better word than signs. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit starts with love. So where's the fruit? Where are the fruit indicators in your life and in my life that we may or may not be growing in our love for God and our love for people? Where's the fruit? And I'll just offer two. There's so much that could be said here, but but just two. One that relates to loving God and one that relates to loving other people. Related to loving God supremely, if you're growing in your love, then you'll notice this fruit. This fruit of the fact that you'll be giving God your best. If you're growing in your love for him, living into the yoke, then you'll realize, I'm giving God my best. The best of your time will go to God, the best of your talent will go to God, and the best of your treasure will go to God. Or or come at it from the other direction. Ask yourself this, where does my prime time go? How do I spend it? Or check your checkbook. Where do you spend the most amount of your money? Or consider the talents that God has given you. Who gets the best? Is it God or is it someone or something else? If God's getting your best, then that's fruit. You're in the yoke learning, like Jesus, how to love God supremely. But if in your heart of hearts you know God's not getting my best, then that's a come-to-Jesus moment. It's a a moment to stop and say, what, what is getting my best. What is, what am or who am I loving more than I'm loving God? Well, the second place we must, we must search for fruit is related to our love for others. What does the fruit look like if we're growing in our sacrificial love for other people? Well, fundamentally, loving others sacrificially means that we're willing, able, and then we actually seek to expend the same amount of time energy, creativity, interest, and resources to seek the good of others as we do for ourselves. And that's a longer definition of love your neighbor as yourself. And I understand the lofty bar of that, how high it is. No one does this 100% of the way, 100% of the time. But that's why the metaphor is fruit. We're growing into this. Isn't that what happens with fruit? You don't see the growth overnight, but then you you step out and you look back at it and it's like, hey, there's fruit there. We're growing into this over time by the power of the Spirit and, and under the banner of grace. But as you do that, as you grow in your sacrificial love for others and you invest as much in them as you do in yourself, what you realize is you're doing this for the people that are right where you are. You're loving your neighbor as yourself right where you are. And I think this kind of runs in the face of how we typically think as Christians of love your neighbor as yourself. For us, I know for me, it's it's often meant serving at the soup kitchen or helping the, the wounded man by the side of the road. 
And of course, these are fine examples of what neighborly love is, but this morning, I want to push us to actually think a little bit more normally. Because I think the consistent witness of the Bible is that it's deeply important to God that we love the neighbors that are right around us. And we don't spend time in any more places than our homes and our places of work. Uh, For many of us here, those things are even connected, stay-at-home parents. There's overlap there. But our homes and our vocations, the people literally right around us, that's who we should be focused first on loving sacrificially. Because if we're not even doing that, so when it comes to the home front, all you have to do is ask, right? Your spouse, your kids, your roommates, how am I doing when it comes to loving you sacrificially? How could I do better? Where could I grow? They're going to tell you, aren't they? They're going to point out the gaps. And when it comes to our work, we shouldn't miss how central this was to Jesus' original point. You see, in Leviticus 19, where Jesus is getting the love your neighbor as yourself, there's this whole section on the gleaning law. And the gleaning law was this command for farmers in the first century to leave part of their fields untilled to leave part of their fields unreaped so that the poor and disenfranchised, the alien and the orphan, could come and could glean it. In other words, so that they could collect it for themselves. So one of the examples of sacrificial neighborly love in the chapter that Jesus is quoting from is a vocation example, vocational example. It's about job creation and it's about helping people find meaningful ways to provide for themselves. We ought to do the same thing. How can we love better the ones that are in our homes and the ones that are next to us in the office? And if you do that, if you love God supremely, start with Him by entering into the yoke and focus your energies, at least initially, on loving those closest to you, then you will be well on your way to faithful obedience of the great great commandment. And yes, you'll fail will fail, we do, all the time, every day. Which is why we must never consider the yoke without the cross. When we fail, we must look to the one who loved and loves perfectly. The one who laid down his life to fill the gap when we don't. On the last night of his life, even though loving God meant certain death, Jesus' prayer to his Father in heaven was not my will be done, but yours. Jesus' love for God was exclusive even to the very end. Jesus' love for God was supreme with all of his heart, all his mind, and all his soul. Jesus loved his heavenly Father more than anyone else, and it set his life on a course, didn't it? A course that led him straight to Calvary, straight to the cross, to the cross where he loved every human being as himself where Jesus offered his life for ours, literally treating our lives as his life, dying in our place for our imperfect and failed love. So come to Jesus. You need not ever wonder or worry or doubt his care or concern or love for you because Jesus has loved you as he has loved himself in the most tangible and greatest way possible in that he laid down his life for you. He has treated your life as if it was his own. So love him supremely and you will love your neighbor as yourself. Love him supremely and your love will carry you. 
not towards destruction, not towards emptiness, but towards rest and towards eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you loved us first so that we could love you. We know that all of this is only possible because of the love that sent us, your son Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And we trust in that good gospel story that provides us a way to love you supremely and then through you love others sacrificially. We know that we need the power of the Holy Spirit to do so. And so we are thankful for him as well and are grateful for all of this. In the name of your son Jesus, amen.